Welcome. We're Kevin Smith and Mark Bleicher from Arate Incident Response. We're excited to share actual incident response cases, chat about IT security, and introduce you to the most influential players in the industry. With that, let's get moving. And thanks for joining this episode of Security Superpowers. Welcome to another episode of Security Superpowers with me, Kevin Smith, and Mr. Mark Bleicher. Welcome back, Mark. Thank you, Kevin. Glad to be back. You know, we missed you last episode. We had Jim Yeager visit us. Uh, that was a great discussion with Steve. And speaking of Steve, Mr. Steve Ramey, welcome back. Hey, Kevin. Very, very nice to, to be back here to, to join you and Mark to, to talk a little bit about our our cooking classes together. <laughs> yeah, there's a theme there, Steve. You, uh, you, I think you like food fights, and now today we're talking about cooking. You, you always set these recording times during my eating hour, so I'm just a little famished at the moment. <laughs> well, we'll try to speed through this then. Um, listen, today, um, I'd like to provide our listeners with some insights into an experience I think all of us here uh, hope they never have to go through. Um, I'd like to, to just give them an insider's view of what an incident response is like and the steps that uh, that we take to get our customers back in business and ultimately better than what we found them. You know, thankfully... Uh, many people out there, many businesses out there, this is kind of the great unknown. And I think um, in an effort to reduce some of the shock in the event that some of our listeners ever experience this, um, just like to give them just a kind of a high level view of what it looks like when they go through it. To get right to it, I want to draw our attention to what the typical IT environment looks like. So knowing that, that there's always going to be an exception, but what are some of the obvious characteristics of our customers? Um, what what is the, what does their computing environment look like? What's the skill set of the the IT professionals? Uh, so from a from a um, you know environment, what it looks like. A lot of these networks are flat, and, and flat meaning there's no network segmentation. So all the computers can see all the computers. If if you're in a room, a crowded room with a bunch of people, you can see everyone. And there's nothing stopping you from going and talking to all those folks. Uh, the same thing as if you were to segment that room off, put dividers up or put, uh, put you know, fake walls in place. Now you have those walls, you have that segmentation, which prevents you from interacting with those individuals. So you have to find the correct path, maybe a door, maybe a ladder, maybe a window to get through that wall and engage with those other individuals on the, on the other side. Mm-hmm. So when you have a flat network and those computers can see each other, there runs the risk of of a single attack finding the domain controller and then broadcasting an attack from that domain controller. Uh, whereas if you were to segment your network off, maybe you have your production area of the network, maybe you have a backup segmentation um, or a segmentation that stores your backups. Um, an attacker gets onto the production network. If the network's set up correctly, they shouldn't be able to see your segmented network containing your backups. And that in itself would prevent the attack from being successful should the attacker want to go and delete your backups. So, um, you know, the, the flat network is, is a major um, common theme we see across all of our clients. And, and, and it's not just the small mom and pop shops with 10 or 15 computers. We've seen this at, you know, co- uh, companies that are on the Fortune 500. Uh, we've seen the global networks that are completely flat organizationally. Uh, that just don't have any security that's set up to prevent, you know, that type of uh, attack. Um, Additionally, you know, lack of security products. A lot of organizations rely on off-the-shelf 
uh, antivirus. Um, we've seen these types of programs easily defeated uh, recently. You know, attackers have changed their tactics. Most don't rely on a phishing email anymore. Um, they use a crafted packet or excuse me, crafted program, a payload that can certainly bypass a lot of the antivirus programs, giving the attackers backdoor access into the system. Once connected, they manually look for that AV program and disable it. Hmm. Uh, further, uh, to further that, once they get domain credentials, administrator credentials for the domain, they then build scripts to broadcast disabling that antivirus throughout the domain. And so if you couple uh, a weak security product with a flat network, it's you know a hidden treasure for an attacker to be able to get onto a network, uh, perform easy reconnaissance, disable antivirus, and then move along freely throughout the organization. You bring up credentials. H- how does a threat actor get administrative access um, right out of the gate like that is, I mean, what are some of those scenarios look like? Uh, hey, Kevin, this is uh, John from IT. I see a problem with your computer. Can I have your username and password so I can log into it and verify it's not a threat? Hmm. That's one. That's one way. It's uh, social engineering at its best. Sure. Um, other ways, you know, phishing emails, a uh, similar style of, of uh, social engineering, uh, but it's more, um, it's all electronic based where I send you an email and it has a fake, um, a fake logon prompt that would, would present to you and you would enter your information in there. Nothing would happen other than redirecting to the real logon prompt while all the while the credentials you entered would just be sent to me um, and that I could use to log in as you. Other ways, uh, once the attacker gains access to the, system, to the, to the network, to the systems, uh, they run a program called Mimikatz. Uh, open source, um, developed, um, find the project on GitHub actually. And once that program is run, it actually dumps the usernames and passwords from memory um, on the computers to a text file. The attacker then takes that text file, exfiltrates it out. Uh, Depending on the system, that might dump it to a clear text or it might uh, dump the hash value that could then uh, be brute forced. Uh, Other ways, uh, outside of that, uh, we've seen you know the entire Active Directory get dumped um, using tools like Bloodhound. Uh, you can enumerate through there, pull out clear texts, um, grab them from uh, the Active Directory, exfiltrate them that way. Um, and then even you know password uh, aggregation websites from all these different data breaches that have occurred. Uh, you can actually go out and build your own. Um, credential stuffing attacks. You can build a database of, at some point in time, a known username and password combination. So for a small monthly fee, you can get access to to dehash.com where you can uh, actually see clear text passwords for email accounts that can then be used for you know, any nefarious activities. Word of advice, do not go there and get that subscription attempt to log in. You'll violate a ton of uh, laws. Um, trespassing and such all at the federal level. Uh, I'm not sure what they are internationally. I'm not a lawyer, but I just know that it's bad to go and attempt that. But rather from a security perspective, one can use that type of um, website for training and uh, training awareness for their end users. So they could say that our domain has been found. These are the types of passwords that are in use. Don't use these passwords ever again. 
Uh, please increase the, the, the complexity and strength of your password from five characters to 15 or 20 characters um, to help uh, uh, increase the, the complexity so that if a brute force were to be attempt, uh, they would be very unsuccessful because it wouldn't be a, a, a known dictionary password at that point. Uh, one that we commonly see, uh, especially with ransomware, is a lot of the banking children's, the credential harvesters that they have built in with their functionality. Um, you know, the the breach or the the compromise may not happen right away after there's uh, you know the banking trojan is harvest the credentials, but those can later be sold somewhere and purchased, and access can be gained that way. But um, we often see that sometimes at initial point of entry and compromise of credentials is happening one and the same with, uh, you know, Quackbot, TrickBot, Emotet. One of the things that surprised me, Steve, that you brought up was that, I mean, you're seeing like flat networks, for instance, in Fortune 500 companies. I mean, it almost seems unbelievable to me. You know what I mean? Like you would you would assume with all of the resources and the skills that, that exist in those kind of environments – uh, network segmentation is kind of, uh, you know, scalability 101, right? Um, but the common theme that I want to bring back here is passwords. I mean, passwords, passwords, passwords. And it just, it seems to be a common theme almost on every episode that, we, that we've had with security superpowers. And, and let's just take time to discuss that. In my research, I found that a nine character password with special characters, capital letters, and some, un, you know, just some crazy combination of characters really isn't the, isn't what makes that password secure. Um, and maybe one of you guys can confirm or deny this. If I were to just select four words, maybe select my favorite food, my favorite vacation city, the make of the, of my favorite car and, and, uh, my aunt's uh, favorite color or something. Um, if I were to string those four words together, does that, do you think that that's giving better security than a nine character mixed, you know, mixed case uh, password with special characters in it? Uh, exactly. Kevin, you know, the, the goal here is for the length it's, it's to get that password to at least a minimum of 16 characters um, so that it, tremendously increases the time to be able to brute force that hash of the password from an attacker's perspective. So from a, um, you know, a normal everyday user, um, stringing together words, uh, as long as they're not dictionary based, turning sentences into acronyms, um, appending or concatenating key pieces of information together, like a book title, the total number of pages and the, the date you read it or maybe completed it on. Um, having that personal information there um, specific to each account, right? Because you don't want to use the, the same password over and over again. Um, you want to use a unique password to each account. So whichever perspective that you, you use or whichever schema you use for building your passwords, you know, making it a minimum of 16 characters um, and unique across your, your landscape of password use uh, is really the goal that we should achieve. Got it. And, and Mark, I'm going to just throw this your way. Um, so we've talked about network complexity. We've talked about passwords. We've talked about, you know, how, you know, what, what the threat actors vector is through the network to gain administrative access and, and the different ways that they get that. How important is it 
that the IT person who's managing their IT infrastructure, I mean, give is there a particular skill set? Um, do you find that there's, you know, folks that are maybe new to being an IT system administrator uh, or, or do these incidences occur with, you know, hardened veterans with years of experience? I mean, what it, what does the, the IT leadership look like in these organizations that, that may have compromises? What we commonly see in the small to medium-sized businesses is very small, underskilled IT staffs are overwhelmed, and you know we're dealing with a lot of ransomwares. And it's like I tell every client, um, you know, recovering from a ransomware, especially in the first few days, if you know you've got to get back up and operational as soon as possible, because your business depends on it. If your IT staff isn't equipped either skill-wise or resource-wise, here I mean that's a it's almost an impossible feat because. Um, no matter if you're large or small, it's essentially setting back up your entire IT infrastructure within a matter of days or weeks and you know, doing projects that would sometimes have a six-month-plus implementation cycle. So it really, to answer your original question, it goes back to, you know, like anything, uh, how well uh, resourced the organization is, both, you know, the revenue. So the larger organizations, we tend to find the more skilled uh, IT staff, and they're usually able to protect against a lot of the low-hanging fruit, which we commonly see with the small to medium-sized businesses. Um, so I guess that also answers the other question is they're, you know, not very skilled. And when I say low-hanging fruit, yeah, you know, you typically wouldn't find several, you know, just wide open RDP ports or, you know, access points into a network at a, a large, you know, Fortune 50 company, whereas that would be common at, you know, say, a small, uh, you know, machine repair store somewhere. And, and all that makes good sense. And I, and I think that it's not just internal IT staff. It's, you know, a lot of these small mom and pop shops uh, outsource. So what, what would, <laughs> you know, I have to ask the question, what, what, what is, you know, what, what's their excuse when they're charging $200 an hour, right? Well, so that also, you know, add some more context to what I said is the, the smaller IT staffed, you know, organizations or the more underskilled ones will tend to rely more on outsource IT for the you know, general operations administration type of thing. And then they may have them do some basic security, like monitor their email or, you know, antivirus solution. Uh, but their, their main focus isn't security, so it's really you have two kind of underskilled and not really in the know as far as the threat landscape IT resources now per, you know, supposed to be protecting your network. So, you know, would there be any advice to give to these smaller businesses? You know, how can I hold my managed service provider or my internal IT staff? How can I hold them accountable for just doing baseline baseline uh, activities? I don't know how they would hold them accountable. I mean, the thing you have to consider is a lot of these types of organizations we're talking about, you know, they're small, they're very focused, some, you know, a lot of small accounting firms, that sort of thing, kind of professional services, you know, architecture. So their main focus isn't technology. They just want to be able to do their job, uh, you know, have the basic business functions. So, to them, they're just looking for help, you know, somebody to do our IT. Sure. And that's that's really all they care about. So I don't know if it really, uh, you know, it, accountability is going to, 
if it matters there, because I don't know what they would know to be accountable for. And I think that you just uncovered it, right? I mean, how do you, how do you educate a business leader who's really focused operationally? Like, how do I get my widget out the door? How do I get my service out the door? They're not going to, you know, they're not usually equipped with, you know, hey, you know, Johnny and IT, are my RDP ports closed? Is my email, does it have a security gateway? You know, are you changing passwords every 90 days? Um, that That's uh, that's certainly a, a good point. I'm going to throw this in, in, into gear here with regard to the incident. When a company discovers, for instance, unauthorized access, they, they find an unusual account or they, you know, it's determined that maybe someone's credentials have been compromised. What immediate steps should they take? Yeah, so, so Kevin, I mean, it's, it's the, the immediate steps really are dictated by, you know, at what stage are these attackers um, uh, in the kill chain? And so if they're still performing reconnaissance, uh, understanding, you know, who's who in this network, critical, inf- critical infrastructure, where the backups are stored, uh, where all the crown jewels are, um, and they're preparing to steal data and then eventually drop ransomware. You know that is a um, that is a window of opportunity for the the victims to strengthen the perimeter, to start remediating systems that have been infected, to start deploying enhanced security measures, so that whatever the attackers continue or try to continue to do will be automatically contained and defeated because the attackers weren't prepared for um, a robust security program uh, to be deployed. Um, The the harder piece with the immediate steps is you don't want to tip the attacker off that you know they're in the environment Mm. because that would then bump their timeline up to hurry up and do whatever it is they need to do so that they can inflict the most maximum amount of damage um, in what little time they have left. And so it's a very delicate balance with responding and containing versus outright just pushing them out of the environment. Right. Cause they could pull the trigger at any time and, and you may not Correct. be ready. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and uh, especially with these ransomware guys, um, you know, we found them plenty of times uh, in the network uh, prior to deploying the ransomware. In fact, we had one client that when we got on the call with him, he said he literally uh, has no internet because he literally cut the cable <laughs> to his internet router with scissors <laughs> Uh, needless to say, it took him another 18 hours to get the, their systems back online because uh, he had to go to the store and buy a new cable. But For, for a $10 cable. <laughs> That's pretty drastic <laughs> I, and, and effective, but pretty drastic. 100% effective. I mean, uh, you know, it, it, it just shows the paranoia that, that goes on. You know, everyone's, you know, willy-nilly. You got your, your network. No, no, It's not going to happen to me. And then you find out that there's this person in your network. Mm that you've not authorized or not on your payroll. They have no business being there and you don't know what they're one capable of doing or two intend to do. So then, so then uh, what happens if that threat actor executes on that payload? What, what happens if, you know, you come into work, it's a Tuesday morning um, and all of your systems are encrypted. I'm going to the beach. <laughs> uh, me getting on a jet plane and flying away, man. So it's, uh, it's not a pretty sight to tell you the truth. Aside from me being on that plane with you, depending on if it's warm or not, but um, what does that look like? What what immediate steps? I mean, it, you know, the first inclination of some IT teams is to just, oh, we got to, you know, let's rely on our backups and we're just going to, we're going to format every computer and start over from scratch. What, what 
what what advice do you have for them? Uh, certainly. So so once the payload's detonated, right, or or um, the attacker is, is caught in the act, and somehow the the client's able to to kick them off of their systems, um, you know, an investigation needs to be performed first and foremost. Simply restoring from backups isn't going to do any good unless that dirty information, those dirty systems uh, that have been touched by the attacker, are investigated and the purpose of the investigation is is pretty much twofold and you want to answer these two major questions what did the attacker or how did the attacker get to your systems and then the second question is what did they do and what did they touch and what did they possibly take that's all lumped into you know one question there it's basically the attacker's activity and the investigation would answer those two questions. First and foremost, finding patient zero, finding the entry point is critical because that's a, a security gap. If it's exposed RDP, if it was a phishing email, if it was some other uh, hmm. vulnerability that was exploited that was unknown to the company, then that still exists after you restore from backups. And so just because you restored your backups to a quote-unquote clean state doesn't mean that a security hole has been remediated and you're still vulnerable from attack from that same group or from a different group. And now you have two groups attacking you, two different ransomwares, um, and then possibly two different ransom payments should they delete your backup. So, so first and foremost, the, the preservation of those dirty systems is critical. Uh, preservation can happen in many different ways. Uh, it's, it's pretty lengthy to, to describe them all, but basically taking snapshots of those systems for preser- for investigation, and that should include all the files on those systems, as well as the backups, backups that were close to the point of, of uh, nefarious activity. Uh, and then once the investigation is underway, data has been preserved, then the organization should start to restore from backups should the backups be accessible. Um, the restoration aspect can get the business up and running. Um, once the backups are restored, deploying a tool like Sentinel-1, an endpoint detection and monitoring, I'm sorry, the endpoint detection and response tool uh, will help with, with further containment because deploying Sentinel-1, it's a very aggressive tool. It will look at uh, systems um, holistically, build a baseline of the system, identify threats based on of signatures, heuristics, even artificial intelligence. It's a very powerful tool um, to identify um, very bad actions on systems and alert. It automatically contains them and removes them from the system. The containment set in one provides, provides confidence to the client that they can start using their systems while the forensic investigators now have time to perform their investigation to trace back to find that patient zero. What shouldn't the customer do in the event that they discovered that their systems have been, you know, uh, attacked with ransomware? Um, any major don't do these things? I'd say do not power systems off. And I always tell everyone, you know, instead take everything off the network and just, the reason for that is post encryption. If you have to get, you know, pay a ransom and, and you know, unfortunately have to go that route. Um, restoration and recovery can be infinitely worse uh, because what we see commonly is just 
systems not coming back up, a lot of problems with databases, um, and that ends up prolonging recovery. And a lot of times, these are like business critical. So it's that can end up sure. making something um, exponentially more difficult. So instead, take them off the network. And then, like Steve said, first thing we do is deploy Sentinel-1. So clipping, clipping the internet, yes. Exactly. <laughs> Rebooting the systems, no. <laughs> yeah, I think some of these uh, these ransomware groups, they actually tell you in their ransom note, do not reboot your system. Adverse side effects can occur, and you cannot hold us responsible for for anything that you fail to do uh, without our uh, direction or something like that. Threat actor pro tips. You've got to love those. <laughs> oh, yeah, they're all around. And then don't reach out to the, uh, the threat actor either. Uh, sorry, I know I said I only had one. But uh, definitely don't do that. We've seen some nightmare scenarios um, where clients have reached out and obviously, you know, <laughs> very stressful situations. So that first correspondence isn't exactly, um, you know, positive. So if you, you know, unfortunately have to go that route and pay a ransom, which is you know, always a last resort, that's something that could really also hinder the rest of that process in a very negative sure. way. Yeah, take, take in an emotional um, an emotional approach could lead to very likely increased ransom if that's your only uh, uh, means of getting back to normal, right? You know, or further destruction, you know, if they still have access to the environment, you know, whether that's through like tooling or, you know, still have credentials and those haven't been reset. It could, we've seen, you know, scenarios where that's happened, you know, whether I have access to, you know, email, it's just, it's not good to, you know, they're criminals. You, it's just, you leave it to the professionals. I, I, I know sure. that sounds corny, sure. but it's, it's true. You know, uh, the customer is, uh, customer realizes or maybe has discovered that their systems have been uh, attacked with ransomware. Don't reboot, uh, you know, remove them from the network. Um, you know, if there's credentials that have been compromised, uh, or if there's a threat actor that's, that's, that's moving around the network with, um, you know, with, a with a username that may not be necessarily uh, familiar or with the administrative username and password, the, the one thing you don't want to do is tip them off. So there's, you know, this is all really good advice. And I think, um, you know, just keeping it in a, in a space where by the time they're introduced to Arite, or their incident response company, you know, they're, they're, they have preserved their existing state, their affected machines, because that's the priority. We want to make sure that we understand the threat, threat actors vector. And number two, they're prepared to, you know, install some sort of containment tool. And in our case, we, we certainly use every time Sentinel one. So that sounds like, um, you know, that, that sounds like that's the condition that you would want to leave them in or you want to have them in when we go through the, the scoping call. Um, when should they contact their insurance agent and what does that look like? I mean, we, you know, we, we deal with in, in incidences every day. Um, there's more than one person on that call. Uh, how do they initiate, um, you know, in their, it, it, let's pretend they don't have an incident response plan what advice can we give them to initiate that incident response management? Um, if you don't have pre-existing relationships with, with a firm like Arite or data privacy attorneys, 
uh, but you do have cybersecurity insurance, your first step should be to call your broker. Your broker, broker could help uh, hook you up with the insurance provider, uh, initiate the claims process, get you in touch with a company like Arite, as well as uh, data privacy attorneys. Once you have um, those relationships established, you move on uh, into the investigation. Uh, additionally, um, you don't need a, an event or incident to talk to a company like Arite uh, to build that relationship. Because the, the closer you have, or from a relationship standpoint with companies like ours, um, up, leading up to an event, the sooner we can respond, the sooner we know your team, your team knows us, uh, the more intimate we are with your network, uh, what we know will be there, what we know won't be there. And so when an incident occurs, because we already have that pre-existing relationship, that makes the investigation, uh, preservation, containment, and recovery phases uh, that much quicker and easier because we have that much more knowledge um, to share mm -hmm. with each other. And speaking of recovery, what does that look like? Uh, length of time um, can, you know, depending on how large the network is, how severely the, uh, impacted the systems are, um, can vary from, from organization to organization. Uh, we do have some, some very good metrics that are guides, um, average days to recovery for some of our clients based on the variant uh, that affected them. But again, that's just a guide. It's not, you know, explicit um, hard stone that if you're infected by a Dharma ransomware, you'll be recovered in 11 days. Uh, it just really takes that long to uh, usually uh, recover the systems uh, or negotiate a, a, um, a ransom payment as well as um, get the key to get a functioning key to the IT team to be able to uh, decrypt the files. Um, so the, the, the recovery aspect can take, you know, a few days to anywhere to three or four weeks. Um, and a lot of times our, our clients ask us from a recovery standpoint, you know, we need you to tell us what to do. And we say, okay, um, what are your critical systems? What are the systems that you need to have up and running so you can pay your employees? You can capture accurate metrics so that you can bill your customers. And what are uh, your systems that ha contain your product? So you can get your operations back up and, and producing. And once we kind of outline it for them, that's when they kick into that business mode and they can start to say, okay, from a priority standpoint, we need these five servers, stand them up first. And then from the applications that are on there, we can establish these configurations. All the while our Arite personnel are working in tandem with, with client IT staff, um, sometimes hands-on keyboard to rebuild these systems uh, set up brand new VMs, set up brand new servers, uh, so that the client can then recover decrypted data or data from from backups into that new environment. It seems like a, I mean, that's an extremely intense process. I can imagine, and you alluded to it earlier that you know rebuilding infrastructure can take, you know, you're taking uh, a, 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 pro, a system or a series of systems. And you're rebuilding them in in the matter of three to five days, or a week, or two weeks, and it and you know it very conceivably could have taken years to build that system up to where it was prior to the the attack. It, it really is, and you hit the nail on the head there. That you know, organization spent ten, twenty, thirty, forty years collecting this data, setting up systems upon systems, and in a matter of minutes. All of that comes crashing down. 
And now the client's faced with setting all of that infrastructure up again, overnight sometimes, through a weekend sometimes, you know, over the matter of the next week. But they've had 40 years to build, to, to call their, their nest, to call mm. their own, to, to have the foundation for their, their uh, organization to run across. They have to set that back up in a matter of days. It's unfathomable when you really think about the level of effort that goes into it, especially with some of these IT teams with how weathered they become. You know, from the day they first detect the attack, the 23 hours, some of you even even encountered, um, they've been up for 48 hours straight. They're, you know, loopy by the time we're engaged because they've been battling this, the propagation of the ransomware. They've been trying to contain systems and verify if their backups are, are still up and running. And so these guys are pretty tired in the first 48, 72 hours. And then you, you kind of hint at it mm-hmm. that if, uh, you know, for a full systems recovery to get back up and running, it's going to be you know, upwards of 11 days. Mm-hmm. You can kind of hear the gasp for air. It's like, I need help. I can't do this myself. I need to go sleep. I have to you know, go to dry cleaning. I get a haircut. You know, these are all normal people too. And so a company like ours, when we show up, it's not just our IR team that, that responds to them. It's our restoration team you know former a team of former system administrators that show up with us and so that if they need a uh, staff augmentation if they need if they're just too tired and they need to bounce an idea off if they want you know some security advice on where do you think this came from our system administrators are standing there um, side by side with them ready to help them to relieve some of that load so that they can get back to you know whatever they might call a normal life during this period of time yeah, it it seems incredible, and nobody, you know, just says, "Well, look, you know, it's five o'clock. I'm going home." <laughs> it's that's that's the beginning of the beginning, um, and and as you state, uh, it can be seventy two hours straight, and you're still sitting in that seat in that chair in front of your computer, trying to just make sense out of all of this. There's multiple things happening during this incident response. One of them is the you know the data gathering, getting getting to know the systems, understanding the the threat. Um, recovery is underway. The 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 incident response lead, uh, the breach coaches, they're all you know we're all engaged with the company to get them on a path of recovery. But all the while, while that's happening, provided that they did all of the things that they needed to do at the very beginning, which is preserve the affected computers. Make sure that they weren't wiping things out, making sure that they weren't negotiating with threat actors. There's a forensic component to this. What makes for a successful forensic investigation? It's a, it's a great question because a lot of the times when we do respond, um, clients think they have a security setup. But when we start asking for firewall logs or VPN logs or... Um, you know, certain artifacts from from uh, their, their antivirus, the centrally stored antivirus, they quickly find out that it wasn't configured correctly or somebody had disabled it because they needed to do an upgrade and it never got re-enabled. Uh, in fact, we had one, one client that had a, uh, a seam that was actually got encrypted by the ransomware. And so we couldn't access any of the historical logging because of, of, uh, of the encryption. And further, we had some clients that had perfectly functioning SIMs um, during an attack, but when we pulled logs from there, mm-hmm. the SIM wasn't configured correctly or the servers weren't configured correctly to 
um, log to that that central location. So it basically rendered that appliance as a giant paperweight. Um, so really, you know, a successful investigation is understanding the security products within your network, the limitations and the limitations that those products have. Um, having the second point would be having a speed dial for um, companies like Arite to respond, help contain, investigate, and remediate all in the same you know, process. Uh, and then the, the third piece here would be just general situational awareness to understand that this is a greater event than just your typical business operations. And it's not just companies like Arite that can come and help you through this. It's also looking from a, a cyber policy standpoint, you know, from an insurance perspective. Uh, it's looking at it from a legal perspective. Uh, it's also looking at it from a public relations perspective. So there's a number of other components outside of, of Arate's incident responders uh, that go into the investigating these types of events. So it's having that general awareness of, of um, bringing in these other parties to help with that uh, knowledge, um, the knowledge gap that may exist in a business that's never experienced something like this before. And, and I think that speaks directly to the importance of having an incident response plan. Most of this starts with a, a solid incident response plan, listing out those point of contacts, making sure that you are, um, you're taking the correct steps uh, to preserve data. It, it all ends up leading to a, a successful forensic investigation. And then, the, then you can get the answers that you're looking for, right? So the, the vulnerabilities, that you that you so desperately need to to understand, and was there data exfiltration? What kind of what level of of uh, of access did the, the the threat actor have? So it sounds like um, you know it, it all ties it all together um, from the beginning. It, it sure does, and I think you've just given me the title for my next article. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> Always glad to help. If you wanted to leave uh, our listeners with one last nugget of, of, of knowledge, what would it be? I'd say he who sweats more in training bleeds less in war. Uh, it's well put. So. That is well put. Um, I really appreciate you, Steve. Thanks for coming by again and, and visiting with us. We always appreciate your company and, and your wisdom and, and insight on these topics. Yeah, well, thanks for having me. Um, wealth of knowledge so if uh there's any writers out there that would like to ghostwrite a book for me i'd be very happy about that <laughs> well it's, you're sending it out to the universe it may come back to you and mark thank you thanks for joining and welcome back i appreciate you uh riding shotgun with us here today and uh, and look forward to our next episode absolutely thanks for having me again kevin and that'll do it for this week we hope you enjoyed our conversation about the anatomy of an incident response I'd like to thank Colin Hanks and Severine Fortin for their hard work in putting this production together. And to you, our listeners, for spending time with us. Don't forget to stay safe, stay smart, and join us next time on Security Superpowers.